Hello, welcome everyone. So we're back again, Saturday afternoon here. Ready to answer questions. Questions about practice. The idea of these sessions is to support people who are keenly undertaking to, or keen to undertake, if they haven't already, the practice of satipatthana vipassana, mindfulness-based Vipassana meditation. Vipassana means to see clearly. So satipatthana, vipassana means seeing clearly through cultivating mindfulness in four ways or through four through four bases are called the four foundations of mindfulness. It's a rather lofty sort of title, but the four satipatthana are, are simply the aspects of experience. They're parts of our experience or different objects of experience. So you've got the body when you're walking and you're aware of the foot moving, that's body, kaya. When the stomach rises and falls, that's kaya. And then you've got vedana. Vedana is feelings, but by feelings it just means the raw non-emotional aspect of feeling so pain pleasure calm that's it sometimes you have a physical experience and it's painful sometimes you have a mental experience and it's painful and there might be emotions associated with it but vedana is not those emotions it's just the raw sensor raw sensation of it this is painful this is pleasant or neutral, maybe you feel very calm, a feeling of calm, or a neutral feeling. And you have citta, citta is being mindful of the thoughts, state of mind, maybe the mind is distracted, thinking about the past or future, maybe the mind is focused. Ultimately just noting, thinking, whatever thoughts you have past, future, good, bad, doesn't really matter. Dhamma, Dhamma is a little bit different, but it includes emotions. It includes senses. So take it just as those to start. Emotions are, well, there's a lot of emotions that are hindrances, and that's the first Dhamma. But you can include all sorts of emotions in there, like liking or wanting, disliking, anger, sadness, fear, boredom. It has fatigue, laziness, distraction, restlessness, worry, doubt, confusion. In brief, the five hindrances are liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, and doubt. So noting those. And the senses, of course, are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. But all of this is in the booklet. If you're interested in what I teach, what I have to offer, or let's be more proper, what this community, this organization, this tradition has to offer. It's not me. I'm not, I didn't come up with any of this. 
what this tradition has to offer, well, read the booklet. And if you're really interested in following up on that, then take an at-home meditation course. We have about 40 people every week currently doing the course. If you'd like to take part, there's a link in the description. You can go to the meditation community. You have to sign up. You have to pick a slot. And then you have to actually meditate. You have to be doing an hour a day for a week. Well, you have to be doing an hour a day every day. You have to be keeping the five precepts. It's a bit of a commitment. Meditation in our tradition isn't a hobby or a pastime or a casual thing. It's something you undertake to improve, to better yourself. So anyway, this session is for questions about that. If you haven't read the booklet, you may want to do that before you ask questions because they may just be dismissed. It'd be better if you did because then you'd have a clearer idea of sorts of things I'll be talking about. Once we start, we're going to we're about to start. So once we start, then we're going to shut down chat. And anything that's not a question in chat will be deleted. And please, let's say from now on, we're just going to start right now, only post questions in chat. Anything else will be deleted. No responses, no comments, nothing like that. You really shouldn't be reading chat. Chat isn't for reading. The only person reading chat should be Chris. Chris is here to help me by asking the questions on your behalf. All you have to do is ask the question, then close your eyes. Wait patiently, try and wait mindfully. And we'll go through all the questions we think are related to the practice. If there are questions that aren't, well, we might answer them if we have time. But most important are those questions that need an answer for the benefit of the person practicing. All right, so I'm ready when you are, Chris. Okay, let's begin. How do you stay focused during meditation? I try to focus, but I feel like I keep getting distracted by my thoughts. You focus on the thoughts. You focus on the fact that you're getting distracted. There are different kinds of meditation. Some of them require you to focus on a specific object. This isn't one of those. If you think about it, the only way you could stay focused is if you had a specific object that was lasting and stable. With objects that are constantly arising and ceasing, you can't really, you don't have that luxury. And so you have to become accomplished in focusing on an object, uh, on, the, on a new object every moment. So you're not actually distracted by thoughts. The thought is an object that arises. Well, okay, yes, you are getting distracted. When, when you have the thought, the thought itself isn't the distraction. The distraction is the reaction to the thought. You're excited by it, you're interested in it. But when thoughts arise, what you should do is say to yourself, thinking, focus on the thought as just a thought. Usually what happens is you've thought for a while, you've gotten caught up in it, and once you realize that you were thinking, well, then just note it then. It's a practice. Eventually you get better and you're able to catch the thoughts earlier and earlier. But don't see the fact that you're thinking as a, as really a problem or something that stops you from focusing on something else. Just focus on the thoughts as the object because everything is momentary. That's part of what you're trying to understand and that you can't really control anything. Trying to force your mind to stay focused would be a bad idea fruitless would be a fruitless task I've been meditating two hours per day and some trauma has been uncovered I've started feeling very depressed should I take a break you should note the depression depressed you know 
you will sometimes feel depressed. The problem with depression, I think the big problem is that it, it, it takes on a life of its own in your mind. Like you start to think of it as something you are and something that you've become. You don't, it's not really accurate to say you've started feeling. I mean, it is kind of, but it, it, the implication there is that it's with you and it's not. It, it seems like it. But from time to time, you'll feel depressed. And it's not really very depressed. That's just a judgment. This is very, this is not very, this is too much, this isn't, this is enough, this is not too much, that sort of thing. That's just a judgment. In fact, depression itself isn't entirely accurate. It's okay, but you may be better to note momentary experiences like disliking or sadness. There might be fear, there might be worry with trauma, there can be all sorts of complicated emotions, liking or wanting, many different things. And there's a lot of physical experience as well. Try and break it apart and note all of those things. You absolutely shouldn't stop just because you have the trauma. Unless it's really overwhelming, then take a break. The best thing to do when you experience a really overwhelming experience is to lie down and do lying meditation. If it's just totally overwhelming, lying can be calming and sort of a means of retreating from it. I would recommend if you're not taking a meditation course to do that. If you haven't done one before, try doing our at-home course. We can connect. We can meet at least once a week. It'll help to reassure you that there's not a an issue there. Depression isn't dangerous. What's dangerous is not addressing it, not facing it, letting it consume you, letting it control you. It's the same with all emotions. None of our emotions are dangerous. They're dangerous when they take charge. When, when we don't confront them. I use a lamp instead of the breath to combat falling asleep when doing lying meditation. Is progress in your tradition possible with this technique? I don't really understand what you use a lamp for. I would recommend reading our booklet. If you haven't done that already, sounds like you might not have. Uh, that's the technique we recommend, the technique in the booklet. I see a lot of different things, sensations, vibration, etc. During one movement, for example, lifting or raising. Is that okay to feel many different things for one noting? Yes. Yeah, that's the idea. Lifting, placing, and so on, it's all it's conceptual, but it's meant to help you see uh, realities, and they'll be momentary. There's so many things going on. In the beginning especially, it's very hard to focus on one. It's not really the point. The point is to see things arising and ceasing. Noting helps you do that. What if a feeling arises which have no word, or we don't know about it, so how can we form a mantra? Mm, you've missed the, mo the easiest word, which is feeling. It's usually a feeling that people ask this question about, and in that case it's just feeling, feeling. Is it advisable to start by observing the inner feelings of the body? It's advisable to start by reading the booklet. That's a little tongue-in-cheek, but the booklet explains to you how to start observing, how to start. Touching, touching, touching. Do I actually touch physically three times the spot, or do I place my hand on the spot and think to myself, touching, touching, touching? The latter. Place your hand on the spot and say to yourself, touching three times. Just touch once, touching, touching, touching. Because you're touching all three times, right? You're already touching once you've started touching. Just start saying touching, touching, because it's touching all three times. It's, it's still touching. I see the chaotic nature of reality. So it seems impossible to see clearly because it arises and ceases so fast. Is there a point where it is possible to see each arising and ceasing? Is it the goal? 
Yeah, sort of. It's not, it's not, you don't have to see. I mean, basically. But it's really just seeing that as the nature of reality and getting to the point where you it, it hits you. Seeing that so much hits you that that this is the nature of reality. So good good work to see that. How do you advise to get the most out of the meeting of the course? I am afraid of disturbing with stupid questions or too personal maybe. Any tip on how to draw the line in a beneficial way? So the meetings are not that big of a deal. There's not much to them. I don't expect it to take very long. It might be disappointing that it doesn't take as long as people wish and they want to get more out of it, but most of what you need is in your own practice. I'm just there to guide you. It really shouldn't take it shouldn't take long at all. I'll ask you any questions. If you want to get the most out of it, try and review the four foundations of mindfulness and tell me what sort of things came up in relation to the four foundations of mindfulness. I don't need personal information or anything like that. I mean, if you have questions, ask them. If you have questions about the practice, ask them. There's no stupid questions. I mean, maybe there are, but I don't mind. I don't judge stupid, not stupid. But bad questions would... I mean, it was just not appropriate questions about things not related to your practice. But if you have a problem with your practice, it's a question. You know, you really should try to get an answer. So don't worry about getting the most out of the meetings. Try and ask yourself how I can get the most out of my practice, which has not so much to do with the meetings. The meetings are to give you new exercises and direct you and when you're when you're misdirected and that sort of thing. When meditating, how do I note thoughts? They are not happy, sad, past or future thoughts, just stories. Say thinking, thinking. Also note your emotions about them. Stories sometimes excite us in a different way, liking, disliking, sad, whatever. Note that. I have never broken the fifth precept, yet I am constantly peer pressured to do so. People often cite my total lack of experience to incite me to try drugs or alcohol. How should I think to respond to this? Hmm. We get this quite I mean, this is a reason monks often use to disrobe monks who are ordained young. They say, look, I've never tried all that. I have to go out and try it. It's a misunderstanding at the very best. At the very best, it's a misunderstanding of what um, what meditation is all about. You don't have to experience everything to let go of it. We let go of experiences, and experiences are everywhere. The reason why we don't do drugs and alcohol is because it prevents us from seeing clearly. You wouldn't have a real experience if you took drugs or alcohol. That's the problem. If you could have a real experience, well, they wouldn't be breaking the five precepts, like coffee, for example, cigarettes, not really breaking the fifth precept. They're not good, but they're not breaking the fifth precept because you can still have a mindful experience. You don't really get anything out of drinking drugs or taking drugs or alcohol. I mean, it, it, it not only prevents you from being mindful, but it, it encourages unmindful behavior, just even a little bit of alcohol. It's the whole point. The whole point is to stop you from being self-conscious, right? Which is really what we want to do, what we're trying to do. It's the antithesis of meditation. I mean, I've never taken crack cocaine, but I don't think it's going to help me if I do to give me a better experience of what things like crack cocaine are like. I've done a lot of drugs in my life, soft drugs mostly. Mushrooms, I did some, you know, several times. A lot of marijuana, hashish, oil, that sort of thing. None of it helped. None of that did anything good. It was all bad. Alcohol, I drank a lot of alcohol. I, I don't feel like I benefited from that. 
There's no benefit. I mean, I mean, it's ridiculous to think that you could benefit from it. People will peer pressure you into doing things that they do. It helps them feel better about what they do. It makes them feel happier because it's uncomfortable being around people who, of course, um, actually disparage what you do, right? It's a criticism on them that you don't drink, so that's uncomfortable for people. Of course that's going to happen. Something I would I would observe that experience of people telling you to do things and say, in this case, this is not a good reason to do things, to do these things. This is this peer pressure comes not from a place of wisdom, <laughs> but from a place of of ignorance. I would judge I would look at it objectively like that and say, this is these people don't have a good reason for for encouraging me to do this. How is it possible to see each arising and passing away when the Visuddhimagga says there are millions of arising and passing away each second? Mm. The Visuddhimagga is going by the Abhidhamma which talks about you know, 17 thought moments in each experience. Practical experiences don't work that way. Like you don't, so you don't see to that extent. Only, I mean, the Buddha apparently could. I mean, even then, it's it's not it's not exactly that he saw that. It's that he understood that. But that's why I hedged my bet when when you had when the I don't know if this is the same person who asked the earlier question, but it's basically what the, that's the idea. But the idea isn't every isn't in that millions per second way. It's in seeing that the stomach arises, the the rising of the stomach arises and ceases. When you reach for something, the reaching arises and ceasing. When you flex your arm, the flexing arises and ceases. When you think, the thought arises and ceases. You'll see that, but it just won't be on the level that the Abhidhamma or the Visuddhimagga is talking about. So yes, okay, technically, that's not the, the that's not the goal, and that's a good point because it's a sort of a thing that only the Buddha could see. But on the other hand, that's exactly what you're trying for, on the level of practical experiences. You're trying to see, the stomach arises and ceases, and thoughts arise and cease. And it'll start. That'll start becoming more clear. You'll see everything arise and cease. Remember that the this the 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 experience that Kondanya came to see that we describe as the experience of Sotapanna. Yankinchi samudaya dhammang sabantang niroda dhammang. So he saw everything that arises ceases. Whatever is of a nature to arise is also of a nature to cease. So basically, yeah, that's what you're trying to see. It's just not. Not on the very technical level that the Visuddhimagga and the Abhidhamma talk about. I'm used to feeling the breath at my nostrils during meditation. Now that I'm watching the belly instead, should I redirect to the belly during the day when my attention comes back to the nostrils? No, just note feeling, feeling. When your attention is at the nostrils and you feel something there, say feeling, feeling. You're just sensitive there because of the attention you've placed. It's nothing special. Just say feeling, feeling. But during the day when you're not meditating, you don't have to focus on the belly either. You can focus on, say, sitting or walking or standing or all the many things that are going on. It's only when you sit down and close your eyes that we, we give the exercise of focusing on the stomach because it's what moves, it's what you'll experience. I am very much attached to my ego, which causes me a great deal of suffering. How can I dissolve my ego? Well, to some extent you can't, because that's ego talking. You want to do it, right? You want me to give you instructions that enable you to do it. 
So that would just be propping up your ego, finding some way to do it. Meditation is about observing and learning, studying. And when you see clearly there's, I mean, there is no ego. Ego isn't a thing. Ego is just a concept. There exists attachment, and you'll see that attachment more clearly. Even just the premise that you have an ego is a problem. If you read, haven't read the booklet, I recommend doing that. I really can guarantee that practice and practice of mindfulness in this way helps to reduce things like conceit and ego and views and so on. As you go along with the path, do you find yourself feeling suffocated by people around you? If you're asking about me, I can't answer that. I think maybe please rephrase that if you're interested in yourself and phrase it that way. I'm not quite sure if that's what you're asking or not. How to keep awareness of death every moment? Well, death is an interesting topic. There are three kinds of death. Death we call kanika marana, death at every moment. Samuti marana, death as a concept. And samucheda marana, which is death of... Well, it's a true death. Of, of, um, samucheda means cutting off, death by cutting off. So momentary death is... When you extend your arm again, the extending is born and dies. When you flex your arm, the flexing is born and dies. When you walk, the movement of the right foot is born and dies. When you think, when you feel, every moment we're born and die. Samuti marana, when you say this person died or that person died, that's just a concept. So what we see from the outside, but the reality for the person who dies is continuation of the birth, death, birth, death every moment. Except in the case where someone becomes free from defilements, and that's samucheda marana, that's the cutting off, the death of defilements. In that case, there is no coming back. So for at every moment, the best way is to practice mindfulness and to watch things arise and cease. That's how you see true death every moment. There are more conceptual ways to think about your death. You can, of course, sit around noting aduang me jivitang duwang maranang. My life is uncertain. Life, Death is certain. I've been shown how to rephrase this question, so I'll ask it a little differently. As I go along with the path, would I find myself feeling suffocated by people around me? So, I mean, in general, practice should make you less reactionary. But in the beginning, uh, you might feel a conflict. And... The conflict will be in two ways. One, it will be the reactions. Your reactions because now you have a new goal. Your goal is to be more present and mindful. And the the people you surrounded yourself with are, are not interested in that sort of thing. And people in general tend not to be. But the, on the other side, as you change, as you become more mindful, you'll find yourself no longer jiving with other people and that can't really be helped you won't feel suffocated you'll just have a sense of the disharmony the the what's the opposite of harmony it will feel like it will feel natural to move away from certain people and they will feel natural to move away from you 
they will be upset by you and that sort of thing. But you will never feel suffering. I mean, if you do, that's just another experience. Lots of bad experiences can come about in early practice because you're changing yourself, and that's that's stressful when you change your direction. Your old direction keeps popping up, and you keep pushing it back, and you're fighting with it in the beginning. But if you do feel suffocated by people, you just not feeling, feeling, or... Suffocated is kind of conceptual You might just say disliking or frustrated Or upset That sort of thing Any paranoia about the practice Should be labeled as worry, right? The observation should feel natural and easy While as precise as possible For example, not putting too much pressure On the label That sounds plausible. I hesitate because you shouldn't be concerned about how it should uh, how it should feel be because you're going to experience how it feels. You're just you just apply the technique, and your mind applies it as best it can, which is not very good in the beginning, not very well. And you see that. You start to see how it's not natural, how it's uncomfortable, how your mind is forcing things, how your mind is controlling things, is worried, is stressed, is clinging and craving. And that's the, the process. You watch how you do the practice and you, you, you see how you do it poorly until eventually it, it naturally feels natural. It becomes natural naturally. Paranoia about the practice, yes, should be labeled as worry worry or fear or yeah worry and fear is it okay to breathe through the mouth occasionally especially when one has a cold or is it harmful that's fine not harmful. Nothing's really all that harmful. The, the, the way you practice, the way you apply the mind is where harm might come if you start doing things that aren't recommended, aren't directed in the booklet, like noting things you want to happen is a common one I always bring up. If you start saying happy, happy when you're not happy because you want to be happy, that can be quite dangerous. But physical things, not not so dangerous. Not really ever dangerous. That's why you could lie down and do meditation, you could sit in a chair and do meditation, you can breathe through your nose, through your mouth, through your ears. Physical is not a problem. Should I investigate and cultivate kindness towards myself when there are recurring painful thoughts, like a particular memory or regret? Your best bet is to note pain, disliking, sadness, sad. You can say regret, regret. Kindness towards yourself can be helpful, but it's much less effective than investigating with mindfulness. Investigating with mindfulness is really about simplifying the experience. So your reactions don't have a place. Sometimes I apply effort, yet I can't see clearly, while other times clear seeing is easy. I see this as impermanence, however. Should I try to always see clearly? How so, if effort does not always help? You should never try to see clearly. That's not the practice. That's the goal. And the thing about goals in practice is that you can't focus on them. Focus on the practice. 
Yes, you see that as impermanence, that's great, that's seeing clearly. Trying to force yourself to, to see clearly, that's not seeing clearly. When you try to force yourself, you've stopped seeing clearly. You're not understanding impermanence. The more objective and detached or unattached you become, right, un unaffected, unmoved, unshaken by the impermanence, the more clearly you'll see and, and the more objective and peaceful your mind will be. As you can see, effort does not always help. That's impermanent suffering and non-self. That's what you're seeing. So it's a lesson. When should I note seeing and when the reaction of seeing? Whichever is clearest. Note whichever is clearest. If you're seeing, if, if it appears to you as seeing, just say seeing. If you like what you see, say liking. If you dislike, etc. Whatever is clearest. Doesn't really matter which. Is Vedana based entirely on the body? You often mention mental pain and pleasure, but don't I don't quite understand what those terms refer to. Well, it's all mental technically, but physical pain is I mean that should be pretty obvious when you hurt yourself physically or when you have a stomach ache or a headache, that's physical. When you feel sad, well that's mental pain. I wouldn't note that probably as pain. I would note that as sad. Upset, if you're upset. But if you're in real mental pain, you could note it as pain. I just, it's not really how we talk about it in English. And pleasure, you can feel happy there. That's an easy one. You often feel happy in the mind. If you feel happy, say happy, happy. And then physical pleasure is pleasure if you have a pleasant stimulation, like a cool breeze or something. I don't know, that might still be feeling what would be pleasant pleasure like uh, a soft blanket just the pleasure the luxury things that are sexual are often very there's a lot of pleasure there but there are pleasant bodily feelings apart from that when you get a massage it can be a very it can be very, when someone's touching you hugs that sort of thing You don't really have to categorize them like all that, though. If you feel happy, say happy. If it's pain, say pain. What is the procedure for noting swallowing during meditation? I find myself needing to swallow a lot during walking meditation. With walking, you could probably just ignore it. But if you want to note it, just stop walking. Say wanting to swallow or even just swallowing. And move on. You can also just ignore it. In walking meditation, it's okay to ignore certain things because you really have a hard time walking otherwise. But it's okay, it's not bad practice, it can be good practice to stop, especially if it's something that distracts you. If you know you want to swallow, just stop walking and wanting to swallow and then swallowing and then move on. Sometimes I don't know if, with labeling, I'm actually forcing the foot, like giving an order instead of noting. With breath, it's more clear when we are forcing it. How would you discern when walking? I wouldn't worry about it too much, but it is kind of important that you wait until you actually feel the foot start to move before you start to note. I, mean, I wouldn't obsess over it, but that's really how it is. Wait until you actually feel the beginning Wait for the beginning of the movement to start saying step, 
stopping, and then right is when the foot stops. Is Vedana based entirely on... Oh, I've answered this. Would meditation affect my drive? I work in an environment that's very competitive, and I decided to take up meditation to deal with stress better, but I am a bit worried that it would reduce my drive. It might. Meditation only, meditation only shows you the truth. So if the truth is that your drive is causing you stress and suffering and your drive is useless, and your drive is not actually a good thing for you, then it will reduce your drive. I mean, you can't... You can lie to yourself and tell you that it's better, tell yourself that it's better. And so that being said, drive isn't necessary to be competitive, necessarily. It may be necessary to, to want to keep your job, but if that's your job, and for as long as you're doing it, it's very easy for a meditator to do things that are very stressful, very intense, um, very intensive, without any stress or without any drive really to do them, because you're doing it as a matter of course. I was, um, I don't have much experience in the working world, but I was doing tree planting, which is, it's very physically, I wasn't a physically... I wasn't a very physical person, uh, but I went to do tree planting, and I kept up with the best of them, just because it was something I needed to do. I wasn't a monk yet. This was before I was a monk, but after I started meditating. And I found that I could just push myself as much as I needed and just, just do it. What probably happens, though, is you start to think of finding better ways to live your life, but don't be don't be ignorant. Don't let the meditation make you ignore your livelihood. If that's your livelihood, then then do what you have to do, and use try to be try to use mindfulness along the way. It will probably make you feel less keen or ambitious about your work. But the ambition is replaced by the determination, and it, it's much better to just be determined to do what needs to be done as much as it needs to be done, much less stressful and much more efficient. Your mind is not stressed, so you can go long hours without any upset or worry or fear or anything like that. Another big problem is often you have to break precepts in work. That's, that's a bigger problem because the sort of thing you're describing is often accompanied by the need to manipulate people and lie to people that if if that were the case that would be problematic but as long as that's not the case you'll find meditation should help you rather than hinder you ultimately it's just going to make you want to leave your work and become a monk so beware of that <laughs> but it doesn't mean you have to do it it doesn't mean you can't do many different things you actually become as i said more efficient If I, as a meditator, have very much physical pain all the time, is it better to be mindful of it rather than dulling the pain with medication? Much better, yes. Pain isn't dangerous, not for the most part. It's not your body telling you something. It's just the, the way the body works. I mean, it was evolutionarily, if you go by that, it's a useful thing. It always has been, but doesn't mean it's a good thing. It doesn't mean it's a meaningful thing. And if you can see it just as pain, then, well, you free yourself from so much suffering. Much better than dulling it. Try your best not to dull it. Try your best to face it, confront it. The pain actually isn't the problem. The problem is your reaction to it. It's a hard thing to see, but it's liberating. How to pass from walking to sitting. As a beginner, just bending, touching, crossing the legs, touching, sitting would be okay? 
You can also say things like intending to sit. Is there any need to seek teaching from only one school of Buddhism? I am asking because I find many beneficial teachings in all the different schools of Buddhism. No, there's no need there. As far as practice, I would recommend sticking to one lineage and tradition of practice at a time. Because some some might be compatible, but some might be incompatible. And ultimately, ultimately it's just distracting. Most traditions that are based on meditation will have a regimen for you. And the regimen really... It's like, suppose you have a trainer, a physical trainer. Don't go to two different physical trainers at once, right? This one tells you to take these supplements and do these exercises. That one tells you. And they don't know what the other one is telling you. So that would be very dangerous. So the mind is much more dangerous than the body. So it's doubly important to stick to one trainer at a time. So to that extent, you're going to be quite limited. But in terms of philosophy and teachings... There are good things even in Christianity. Read the Bible as well. Jesus said some good things. Just be able to distinguish the good from the bad, as with all things. I don't know that you need to go outside of Theravada Buddhism. I mean, the teachings in the Tipitaka are pretty, pretty complete. But there may be teachers in other traditions who have interesting things to say. I think the Dalai Lama has some good things to say, maybe. I don't I guess I don't really know. Is it harmful speech to talk to amuse oneself? It's not harmful speech, but it's useless speech and it's also cultivating cultivating desire, attachment, so it's going to be a bad habit. Because then when you can't amuse yourself, you feel bored, right? Or you do it to not feel bored. Why are you trying to amuse yourself? Because you're dissatisfied with the way things are. That's only going to make you more dissatisfied with the way things are. More dependent on that sort of activity. Try instead to face what it is that you don't like about your non-amusing experience. I take it we've run out of meditation questions, huh? We're on to the second tier. All right. Are you consent to answer more? If there's good ones, go for it. Is right speech as long as your intention of speaking is good? No. It's too vague Your intention of speaking can be good yeah, It's too vague Because literally For your intention to be good It would have to mean Every moment associated with that speech Was good Associated with the intention of speaking that speech Was good Every moment Not just one moment But all of them or at least they were non un, they were not unwholesome and so in that case then yes but when people say your intention of speaking is good you can you can have good intentions and lie right well that's not really true i guess the answer is yes it's just that you have to be careful what you mean by good intention because it's really a, it's really a tautology or it's 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 um You're basically saying the same thing. You can't have wrong speech. You wouldn't be able to lie. You wouldn't be able to gossip. You wouldn't be able to you have useless speech or harsh speech if your intention, if your state of mind was good. 
So if you do any of those things, there's no question that your intention was bad. It's kind of meaningless to ask. Set your mind in the right way, but be clear about what is right speech and what is wrong speech, because it'll help you to know whether your mind is set in the right way. But once you practice mindfulness, you don't have to refer to precepts. You just are... I mean, in the long term, once you become enlightened, is the point. Once you become enlightened, you don't have to ask. You don't have to remember what is the right speech because your mind is pure. So you would never lie or cheat or that sort of thing. Never lie or hurt people with speech. Buddha taught that we don't need the total cessation of suffering to experience the proper joys of the present. So is it correct to say that meditation is the practice of relieving self-judgment? That's what the Buddha taught. doesn't sound exactly like what the Buddha taught. What are the proper joys of the present? I don't know that there's any proper joy. Joy is just joy. Proper, most proper is wisdom. And wisdom comes with the cessation of suffering. So I don't really agree with what you're putting in the Buddha's mouth. It's a bit misleading. And that I don't quite know how that relates to your second part of your question, or your actual question. Meditation is the practice of relieving self-judgment. No, that's not what meditation is. I recommend if you haven't read the booklet to do that. It might help a little bit. So, I mean, it's not perfect. This booklet is not the Bible or anything. But you'll have some idea of what direction we're going in, what meditation is. And then it might clear up a little bit about these sorts of things. Did the Buddha ever give instructions on how to meditate? Sure, he was the one who taught the four Satipatthana, the four foundations of mindfulness. He didn't give very detailed instructions, not like we teach. I mean, I mean, it's not in the Tipitaka, and it's possible that he never did, but it's more than likely that a lot of his students did, and that just wasn't recorded very clearly. I mean, the Visuddhimagga has a lot of, and it's an ancient text, it's only about... 500 years after the Buddha, maybe a little more, a thousand years, just a long time, but in those thousand years, for sure, there were detailed practices and teachings on how to meditate. Whether the Buddha ever went into more detail than Zinnatapitaka, I don't know. But he does teach, and he did. He, there, there are techniques, for sure. There's different techniques. Is it possible to not react, even with a body in constant, very bad condition? I feel it is possible, but I'm not sure. Yes. Yes, of course. That's what mindfulness is all about. I mean, it's possible, it's just a challenge. It's the challenge that we're aiming for, is to not react, even when your body is in a certain condition that is unpleasant. I wouldn't really focus on that idea of not not reacting at all. I would fo the, the point is, the practice is not about not reacting. It's about observing, which reduces your reactions, but also lets you see your reactions. And so you learn about the whole process of reacting and not reacting. And as you see more clearly, you incline towards not reacting more and more and more. And you see more and more clearly until you just let go. You realize reacting is the cause of suffering. I've been practicing meditation one hour per day. I'm a smoker. Does meditation in a certain moment help me not to break the precept? I feel a lot of guilt for smoking. 
So in my estimation, it's not breaking the fifth precept. So you can rest easy there. Just try and be mindful of smoking. The more mindful you are. Apparently, I, I never really got into smoking cigarettes. So apparently, uh, it's very easy to quit smoking cigarettes if you're mindful. Pick up the booklet if you have read it, then you can try doing an at-home course. And apparently, it's not so difficult. doesn't mean that you'll never want one again, but it's not apparent it's apparently not that difficult to quit smoking as a meditator but also note the guilt that can be a real killer crippling when you feel very guilty about something that's just negative disliking anger hatred of yourself that sort of thing try and note all of that Ahimsa toward all creatures is important. I have become vegan but cannot help killing mosquitoes. How do I abstain from killing them with so many people suffering from mosquito-related diseases? Okay, let's not answer that one. There's another one here um, at the bottom. Do you see it? I don't know if your bottom is the same yeah, as my I'll, bottom. Yeah, I'll create a card for it. Let's do that one. And then there's another one by Jacob. You see that one? I'll prepare it, it, but let's ask this. Is this practice a more narrow context than Mahasi lineage? I find encouraging for the practice hearing Mahasi students teaching the same method with different personality. I don't quite know what you mean, but this is the practice that I teach, that I learned from my teacher, is a narrow is a very specific practice. Mahas, the Mahasi Sayada seems to have given, especially in earlier times, a lot of fairly general advice. Like, you could do this, you could do that, try doing this, which is great. I mean, it's wonderful. He's a wonderful teacher, but this is just one way of doing that, basically. And there may even be some things a little different. That doesn't make it better or worse. Techniques are not the be-all, end-all. It's the general thrust and ideas the idea of using a mantra is just an you know, incredible sort of revelation. It's not something new, but it's actually very, very old, very much based on the er very earlier teachings. But it's just great that he sort of came up with these ideas. Wouldn't be too concerned about. But absolutely, anybody in the Mahasi tradition, generally, the specifics differ. But generally, the philosophies are generally really good. Honestly, honestly, though, I really only go back to Mahasi Sayada and one one or two other teachers. But I have found personally some less less enthusiasm when I read other teachers in this tradition, and I don't find any need to go elsewhere. So just read everything Mahasi Sayada wrote. Wouldn't go anywhere else. Oh, I haven't read everybody. I'm sure, apparently, I'm sure there are others out there that are really great. I think I found the other card you were referring to, Bunt. Would it be okay to incorporate your simple Samatha meditations as described in your How to Meditate videos for kids into the practice? Right. So it would be okay, but the whole point of that is that those techniques are lesser than the ones that I teach at the end of the series. If you're looking for something easier, well, those are easier. Samatha is, in a way, easier, more comfortable. Those doesn't make them better meditations. In fact, makes them lesser, because the challenge is important. So don't be discouraged by challenge. And, and yeah, no, I wouldn't try and incorporate them into your practice. They're really meant for kids to get them into the idea of noting, the idea of using a mantra. It's just a good technique. 
if you want to experiment with them, go ahead. I wouldn't recommend it. And certainly if you're doing a course in this tradition, don't do any of those. All right, we're done. Unless there are any very important ones. I think we can be finished. Thank you for your help. Everybody can talk again. Everyone say sadhu. It is good. Sadhu. Thank you all for coming out. Have a good day, everyone. And maybe see some of you back here on Wednesday. Is it Wednesday? No, Saturday. So next Wednesday, maybe. If I'm here and you're here, we'll meet again. <laughs>